Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the ideas and content expressed disturbing or objectionable. This is Dr. Todd Fredericks, another episode of Rotations. I'm an assistant professor of family medicine at Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. And at this time, we get to continue our conversation with Dr. Kent Brantley. And uh, we'll just go right into it. Nisarg? Yeah. Uh, hey, everyone. Uh, Nisarg here. We're uh, continuing our conversation with Dr. Brantley about uh, his work in Liberia. Uh, and we ended the uh, interview last week with when you first were infected. Um, and we talked a little bit about what that transition was like Um uh, kind of going from that physician to becoming the patient. Uh, can you maybe tell us a little bit about what the initial symptoms were? You know, what were you feeling? You know, what were you experiencing specifically uh, when you first were, when you first realized you had Ebola? Sure. Well, I, before I realized I had Ebola, uh, you know, the first symptoms I had, honestly, the first day I woke, I woke up, it's Wednesday, July 23rd. 2014, I just didn't feel good. My stomach was upset. Had so I'm, I'm going to be a little, uh, little graphic here. Okay, no, it's all right. It's, it's, a, medical, it's a medical school. <laughs> it's a medical podcast. Right? Yeah, it's a medical podcast. I, yeah. I just had some loose stool that morning. Like upset. My first thought really was, I shouldn't have put so much Tabasco sauce on my pizza last night. <laughs> like it, it always upsets my stomach, but I still do it every time. Um, but there was something, there was, there was something inside of me, that small voice that said, you need to stay home. There, there are a lot of stories of, of people who contracted Ebola, either, either people who contracted it from a loved one who they knew had Ebola or healthcare workers who, um, started showing symptoms after they had been uh, taking care of patients or had a known exposure. There are lots of the stories that end with the uh, the victim acting out of denial. Right? They continue to go about their work, trying to blow it off, saying this this can't be Ebola. I I know it can't be Ebola, so I'm going to keep working, or I'm going to. Uh, leave and go visit my family in the country instead of going and getting evaluated at an ETU or whatever. There are lots of those stories. And uh, I think it's human nature for us to be in denial about bad stuff. Um, So I don't know why I responded differently that day than... um, than some other people in my same kind of situation. But I thank God that I stayed home that day. Uh, and by the, by that afternoon, I was clearly febrile. Um, the next day, I had just incredible fatigue and nausea. And the nausea was really bad. Like, I was... John Fankhauser, one of my colleagues who ended up being one of my primary caregivers uh, for that first nine or 10 days of my illness. He, he came to my house to bring me some food and I opened the door. He stood outside my door and handed me the food. And, you know, we, we never touched, we kept our distance from each other, but I set the food down on the table 
And then I was standing six or eight feet away from him talking and just was hit by this wave of nausea that was more intense than I've ever experienced. I, I had to back up and lay down on the couch and I was just rolling back and forth in misery because hmm. like I couldn't, I couldn't throw up, but I felt like I needed to, and my stomach hurt and my head, it was, it was a really bizarre experience. And John just stood there watching me from a distance. He couldn't come in and do anything for me. He didn't have on PPE. Um, he's told people, I've heard him, I've heard him say that when he walked away from my house that day, he, he told somebody, Kent's got Ebola. And that was two days before my diagnosis was made. Jeez. Uh, but wow. he, like, it was not normal, right? Yeah. Whatever was happening to me. Um, the next day, he did come into my house in PPE and started treating me with IV fluids uh, and, and IV antibiotics, and IV antimalarials, because I, I started having diarrhea that day as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he had the foresight to say, we we got to keep him hydrated before he gets dehydrated. Hmm. Um, that was, that was the beginning of, of Ebola for me was incredible fatigue and nausea. And then just massive diarrhea that, that eventually became uh, massive in quantity. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned before. Um, so it obviously it got worse, right? And then you were in your home. Uh, you're being treated by some of your colleagues. Uh, what was your mindset at that point? Were you thinking to the future? Were you hopeful, or were you, uh, you know, what what was going through your head? Um, it, my I think my mindset was not constant. I mean, it changed as my experience evolved. Um. I'm really thankful for the mindset I had going into it though. So that first, the very first day before my nausea was really bad when I just felt bad. Um, I feel like it was a gift from God. I, I had a day at home to, I accomplished some administrative work, sent a bunch of emails, worked on the, on the schedule for the ETU. But I had all day at home in my house by myself with nothing to do. And I spent time um, meditating, reading my Bible, praying, journaling, things that I, that in my, on my best days, I like to say that I would do those things. Yeah. Um, but they're not, they're not habits. I don't, I'm not consistent in, in, doing that collection of activities every day. Mm-hmm. But I did that first day that I was sick. And it really framed the next several days for me um, because I spent time reflecting on what in the, what in the world am I doing in Liberia, West Africa. Um, and and I, I was able to reflect on what had taken my family and, and me there in the first place. You know, we were there motivated by our religious faith and the teaching of Jesus to love your neighbor as yourself. 
to serve people in need, like like we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, in the last episode. Yeah. Um, and so, with that in mind, I was able to genuinely say to a, a friend of mine the, the day after my diagnosis, whether I live or die. I just desperately want to be faithful through this. Like, I don't want to be the guy who was faithful to the calling on his life to the point of taking his family to Africa, who then gives up at the end because he gets sick. Like, I desperately want to remain faithful to God and to this calling he's put on my life. And that was that was my mindset in those first few days of, of my illness. Um, and I'm, I mean, it was just a gift from God that he gave me the, the time and opportunity to reflect and to, to go into it with that sort of mindset. Um, as my symptoms worsened and as I got sicker, uh, I dealt with a lot more fear and anxiety. I mean, I, I would be lying to you if I tried to say that I kept that kind of uh, stoic, faithful mindset throughout my entire illness. Like I, one of the nurses who took care of me uh, the night before my evacuation, which was the night I received the, that experimental drug Z map. Um, I, I have no personal memory of this whatsoever, but she has told me that she was there in my house for several hours taking care of me and that I was, that I was tossing back and forth and she was trying everything she could to make me comfortable. She would cover me up with a blanket. She would uncover me. She would give me another pillow. She would take a pillow away. She would give me something to drink. Mm -hmm. And there was just nothing that could calm my, my anxiety. Hmm. Um, I don't remember that. And I'm thankful that I don't remember it. Uh, she says what I told her was sit down in that chair over there and pray for me. <laughs> uh, I don't remember that either. <laughs> but uh, the thing that, that produced the most anxiety, I think were the long periods of, of solitude. Mm -hmm. um, my, my friends who were taking care of me, were doing an incredible job and they would spend way longer. John Fankhauser slept on my couch in full PPE one night. 150 like, degrees. Like, yeah. Took, well, he turned the air conditioner in my house way down. <laughs> <laughs> that was nice of you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but like he, he spent time with me taking care of me. And when I fell asleep, he went and laid down on my couch and went to sleep so that he could still be there and take care of me when I woke up. Hmm. Um, but there were, you know, they couldn't do that every day. Couldn't do that every night. And at the same time that they were taking care of me, they were still trying to run the Ebola treatment unit that was now overflowing with patients. Hmm. Uh, so I spent a lot of time alone. And especially about a week into my illness, uh, seven, eight days, when my symptoms were the worst and I was, I was so weak, I couldn't get out of bed and I was incontinent of stool. I was just like being alone. And that was terrifying Yeah, to think I could die. I, I could be dead before someone else comes back in here to check on me again. So it was not, it was not all uh, 
Sunshine and Roses. Yeah. Uh, it was hard. Mm-hmm. You talked a little bit about the evacuation there. Can you expand on that a little bit? You know, how, how long were you in Liberia uh, before you were evacuated to, I think, Emory University, right? Yeah. I, so I, I woke up sick on July 23rd. I was evacuated on August 1st. It was like 10 days. So, Kent, in preparation for evacuation, obviously uh, the first couple days are probably maybe there was a little communication back with Samaritan's Purse or people, but what was going on concurrently to this? Were they calling the states and saying, hey, we think we have a real problem here? What are we going to do? Because this had not been done before. I mean, we don't take people out of Liberia with Ebola and bring them to the United States. From the time I woke up sick, there were communications going back and forth between the disaster response team there on the ground in Liberia and the Samaritan's Purse headquarters in North Carolina mm-hmm. and their their uh, incident management team that they had set up to manage the Ebola response. So, you know, they were aware that I was sick even before my diagnosis and they were trying to figure out well, what are we going to do for this guy if he actually has Ebola. Um, they were reaching out to U.S. government and to groups like Doctors Without Borders, MSF. Mm-hmm. Now we, I think the week before my illness started, Lance Plyler and I, he was the team leader there in Liberia for, for the disaster response team. He and I had had a meeting with um, a woman from MSF to talk about contingency plans for evacuating any staff that get exposed. And MSF had a contingency plan that included uh, a hospital, I think in Brussels hmm. that, that had, you know, they had an agreement that anybody who gets exposed to a, a infectious communicable disease on the field can be sent there for monitoring and care. Um, and, and our thought was that we were, we were going to piggyback on their contingency plan if anybody got exposed. So going to Europe. Yeah, we would go to Europe and send, send our person to Brussels. Wow. But uh, that plan did not include someone who was symptomatic with a diagnosis. That was just exposure. Just an exposure. Yeah. So they, we tried, they tried that at first, and um, they could not get clearance from all of the countries they would have to fly over with an Ebola patient. Mm-hmm. People said, no way, you cannot fly through our airspace <laughs> with Ebola. What if you crash? What if you run out of fuel and have to make an emergency landing? We don't want you coming across our airspace. Mm-hmm. Um, they worked with the, with the U.S. government, and um, it really was uh, an incredible, it was miraculous the way all of these pieces came together. So Emory University Hospital has their serious communicable diseases unit. They've been practicing and drilling for 12 years. And in that 12 years, they had had one patient who, who actually in the end ended up not having a serious communicable disease. It was, he had something else. They, they had had one patient that they had treated in that 12 years. Hmm. Um, so I don't know how the connection got made exactly to Emory, but they said, yes, we'll, We'll take care of them if you can get them here. And uh, the U.S. State Department 
knew of a company that uh, they had contracted in the past. It, it had built this uh, airborne biocontainment system, ABCS, that fits inside a, a G3 Gulfstream airplane uh, that they had designed back in, like, I don't remember, 2001 during the SARS outbreak in China mm-hmm. um, for the purpose of evacuating any CDC employees who um, might have been exposed to SARS. They never used it. It had never not been used a single time. They never transported a patient in. Um, so the guy from the department called the guy from from Phoenix Air and said, hey, you know that ABCS we worked on all those years ago? Do you still have that? He said, yeah. He said, does it still work? Well, it's in storage. We can get it out. It should It should work. And the guy from the State Department said, will it work for Ebola? <laughs> <laughs> Dead silence from- on the phone. <laughs> no <man>. pressure. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. Phone's so just quiet. Phoenix about to go into a tunnel. In, uh, in Georgia. And near Atlanta and the guy said, I think you better come to Atlanta. (laughs) (laughs) So they, you know, they met up there and pulled out the system and made sure it worked and went through all the logistics. And so by day nine or 10, uh, when I actually evacuated, that was all happening in those, in that first week or so, all of these moving parts coming together. It's amazing. Wow. So, um, do you remember any of the transfer at all? When you like getting on the plane or landing or getting into Emory, yeah, it was really miserable. I mean, it was a fourteen or fifteen hour flight. We landed twice, uh, once at an Air Force base in the Azores mm-hmm. Islands off of Portugal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, they landed there to refuel, and and we're told they could not open the jet door. No one mm-hmm. could get off the plane. They just refueled and sent them on their way. Uh, and then they landed in uh, Bangor, Maine. Mm-hmm. And I'm told that I, I read an article in an aviation magazine where they interviewed the pilot who was flying my plane. He said they they cleared customs in record time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One positive. Yeah. I was on a uh, stretcher, a gurney, like a you know, like a ambulance gurney that was. Very, I, I remember being very padded. It was very soft. Mm-hmm. It was hooked up to like some EKG leads. I had an IV. They recited my IV when I got on the plane. They were giving me IV fluids. They were watching my heart monitor and a pulse on finger. No one stayed inside that little ABCS with me. Uh, they they would come in periodically and check on me. I think, I mean, I, I could be wrong. I think they only came in when we landed. Maybe they came in at other times. I don't remember. But I, I had a bucket, a small bucket with a lid that was served as a toilet and they they offered me they gave me several bottles of water i think i drank seven or eight bottles of water on that flight um they asked me if i wanted anything to eat and then what they had was like oreos or you know, the snacks that the crew had on pilot the plane. food airline yeah. peanuts <laughs> pilot food and what i remember is that i would doze off to sleep and then the need to use the bathroom would hit me. I'd wake up and I would spin around. I'd have to take the pulse ox off my finger because it wouldn't quite reach to the, the bucket. And I'd spin, I'd put, put my feet down on the floor and spin around and sit down on this bucket 
and have diarrhea that would make me so tired and so thirsty that I had to choose between using the hand sanitizer to clean my hands or getting my bottle of water and taking a drink first. Um, and so I'd take a drink of water and I'd clean myself up as much as I could. They had a, a I was wearing like a pull-up style adult diaper. So I, I would pull that back up, collapse back in the bed and drink some more water and doze off and then wake up and do it again. Yeah. The humidity on the airplane was like 14% or something. And the humidity in Liberia in the middle of rainy season is like 100% all the time. So not only was I dealing with that humidity difference, also my severe dehydration from my disease process. Um, it was just really, it was really miserable. Were any of your colleagues from Liberia on the flight with you? Like, was there anyone you knew on there? No, there was a, a nurse named Vance Faraby who helped me get off of the, the makeshift ambulance pickup truck that I had ridden to the airport in. He was wearing full PPE. He helped me down off of that truck, and he said, Hi, my name's Vance. I'm your nurse. We're going to take you home. Wow. And uh, so it was Vance, and Jonathan was the other nurse, and there was a doctor, Doug, and then the flight crew. Yeah. That was it. Wow. So then, um, do you remember getting into Atlanta and then getting into Emory as well? I think I've heard the story from other people so many times that I don't know if I really remember it or if I have just convinced yourself the story of it. Yeah. I do remember arriving in Atlanta and they asked me, uh, do you think you can walk in? And, Cause they had seen me get off the airplane mm-hmm. and, uh, I said, well, how far is it? And he said, it's not very far. It's just right there, but there are some stairs when we get inside. And I said, well, how many stairs? Is it more or less than the airplane? Because coming down off of the jet had been really difficult. He said, well, it's more, but they're not as big. They're not as steep. He said, if you can't do it, we'll go around to another entrance. We'll wheel you in on a stretcher. But if you could walk in, we'll go in right here. Where they were taking me in was the back entrance to a stairwell that led right up to the serious communicable diseases unit. Mm -hmm. As I looked back on it, I thought they must've been doing that to avoid all the cameras Mm. at the time. I had no idea that there were cameras at all. I I didn't know what the, why we were doing this, but we, we walked in to that back door. Turns out that was their plan all along. That was what they had practiced in their drills that patients capable of walking. It decreases the risk of, Mm -hmm. of, transmission you don't have to handle this serious communicable disease patient as much you don't have to transfer them back and forth from stretcher to stretcher mm-hmm. um, you don't have to wheel them through the hospital if they can walk we just go in this back door right up to the scdu so that's what we did yeah. um, so i i have some vague memory of that mm-hmm. uh, once i got into the scdu there was a nurse and a doctor there uh, in full PPE, what I noticed, what I remember is that I noticed that their PPE, they had these huge hoods with a full face shield and they weren't wearing masks. So I could see their faces. Hmm. Yeah. I hadn't been able to see the face of anyone taking care of me in 10 days hmm. and I could see their faces. So not only, you know, I was going to this place where everyone is a stranger. I've never met any of these people. And I could see their faces, and that really, that really 
made a difference. Hmm. Um, I asked, so the nurse was Jill. I asked her the next day or, or later in my recovery. Um, I said, how, how did you get, I was wearing scrubs underneath my suit. I said, how, how did you get those scrubs off of me? Like, I have no memory of that whatsoever. <laughs> did you cut them off? Or she said, no, you sat on the edge of the bed and we took them off in an orderly manner. <laughs> in an orderly manner. As we practiced for the last 12 years. Yeah. <laughs> so did you get the experimental drug treatment at Emory or was it on the transfer over? Um, I received the first dose of ZMAP the night before my evacuation Okay. Um, in Liberia. Okay. So it's a three, it's a three dose medication. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I, if I remember correctly, it's like one dose every three days for three doses. And at that point, it, on, it had only been effective in like monkeys, right? It hadn't been tested in humans. Right. Not even safety trials. No, it, wow. it had never been administered to a human being. Did, did you second guess yourself at all? When I mean, were, were there other options or was that really the only way to? Um, there was, there was a scientist from NIH who was there in, in Monrovia who came to my house after, our, after our, my diagnosis and she stood outside my bedroom window and talked to me about the different novel therapies for Ebola. Hmm. Um, and some of those other novel therapies were used in clinical trials or on other patients who were evacuated to America um, but as, as we discussed the possible options, um, after, at the end of that discussion, I said to her and, and to Lance, our team leader, I think if the antibodies were, were available, I, I'd be willing to receive them. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure about some of the other therapies, whether the, the risks, if the benefits really outweighed the risks or not. But I thought monoclonal antibodies, like in general, those are relatively safe medications, right? This, we yeah. use those for the treatment of other, other problems, autoimmune diseases and, and cancer and different things. Um, so it wasn't a totally foreign type of medication or, or mechanism of action. Um, and I said, okay, if I, if those are available, I think I'd be willing to receive them. Um, the actual decision to give me that medication um, I had agreed with Lance that we needed to give Nancy the first dose. Because my friend Nancy also was diagnosed with Ebola at the same time. She uh, is older than I am. She was sicker than I was at that on that day when we had that discussion. Mm-hmm. And I said we need to we need to give. There was only one course of the medication available. So and you turned said, it down. Well, it wasn't so much me turning. It wasn't it wasn't the heroic. Uh, kind of decision that, that maybe the media portrayed it as uh, in real time. It was like me and another doctor talking about what's the best way to use this medication. We can only give it to one person. What's the best use of it? It's the lifeboat, and, right, Kent? I mean, it's the lifeboat uh, dilemma. You're, you're, you're trying to make a utilitarian decision of the greatest good for a limited resource. That's, that's just, just the cold, hard truth, man, and that's a really yeah. tough place to be. It might have been much more difficult if you hadn't been a physician to be able to think clearly on that one. I I think that's right. I mean, I had a conversation with Nancy on the phone 
And I remember she called me and we were talking on the phone. She said, Kent, what are you going to do about these experimental drugs? Because I'm going to do whatever you do. <laughs> and I said, well, I told them I'd take the antibodies if they were available. And she said, okay, then I will too. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I think, I think the decision making process of, of giving consent to take that medication, I was probably the most well-equipped person to make that decision. Hmm. Uh, when you talk about a critically ill patient deciding whether or not they're willing to receive a drug, like I, I had the understanding of, of what I was consenting to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the utilitarian decision of what's the best way to use this one course of treatment. I was definitely thinking like a, as a physician, uh, to make that decision to say, what's the best use of this? I think the best use is to give it to Nancy. Or she's sicker for the, be- the, the chance. Well, it's, and it's curious because it reflects back upon the challenge you had before Ebola, where you're dealing with limited resources in the hospital and you're trying to figure out who's, which gloves you're going to use on which patient. Mm-hmm. It must have been um, a, a very interesting process for you as a physician to develop that calculus coming from the United States and training here where we just casually go over, grab a pair of gloves. Oh, those are, I didn't get those on right, or I, I just broke my sterile field sewing up this laceration. Let me get another pair of surgical gloves to, I only have so much to work with. I really need to make a good choice here. And now you're doing the same thing for yourself and your close colleague, but it means it may delay your care, which could lead to death. And yet that discipline developed as a physician, probably both from your training and your experience early in Liberia, probably equipped you to do that. Uh, in a methodical fashion. It's a pretty amazing sense of, re- it's, we talk about resilience and, in, and being able to develop those skills. And I think maybe you were trained, that you were being prepared for that the whole time. That leads into a nice third segment just about that, if you have time to spare here to go into that. Do you? Sure. Thanks so much for joining us again, uh, Dr. Brantley, and, and we'll, uh, we'll catch up with you in the third segment. Yes, my pleasure. I'll try not to be so long-winded in answers. No, this, no, no, this, this is, is great. incredible. Uh, it's really great talking to you. I suspect this will be probably one of the more popular episode series that we do, Kent. This is very serious, cutting-edge stuff that uh, isn't taught readily in medical school. That's the thing. It's not taught. Like, no, I feel it's like not. I'm learning so much. It's just practical medicine. Yeah. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is hosted by Nisarg Bakshi, Produced by Todd Fredericks, audio engineered by Kyle Snyder, and edited by Brian Plow. Rotations is co-hosted by a League of Champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve all rights to content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com slash rotations. <laughs> <laughs>